theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaclia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Amy. Good morning, Dr. Joy. How are you today? I'm wonderful. We're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects today, which is teaching methodology. And it's strange. I really like different teaching methodologies because I think that all students learn differently, right? And when I think back to when I went to school, I went to parochial schools. I went to Catholic school growing up. (laughs) I'm sure there were not any differentiation in methodologies at all. (laughs) And you had to pretty much conform to the teacher, right? And I mean, there's some benefits in that too, because it makes you the learner flexible and you do whatever the teacher wants you to do. And, you know, but I think it lends itself to greater outcomes for the students when we use different methodologies. What do you think? Well, and I think also that our teaching methodologies are really informed by how we research. So we're also going to talk about the lens through which we look at curriculum, Uh how it's designed and put together. But one thing I had not heard of before was portraiture. Yes, that's new for me too. And as I'm looking further into it, and I want to hear more from our guest today, is how portraiture brings that art and science together. So you, it really informs your methodology of research, but then that research helps change your view of what teaching looks like in the classroom. So it's multi-layered approach here that we're going to be talking about today. I want our listeners to know that we can do research in our classrooms on a small scale and it can really inform our practices. And the guest we have today did do that in a small scale, but then he went on to principal and superintendent to really Uh make change in schools based on the methodology he was using in his research. He saw connections that we might not have seen had we, you know, when we don't do research. Let me introduce Dr. Christopher Dignam, who served as a K-12 educator for 25 years as a teacher, principal, and superintendent. He began his career as a high school biology instructor and taught a variety of high school science content areas, including chemistry, physics, anatomy, physiology, advanced placement biology, 
these are what we call the hard sciences, right? Uh -huh. uh, Dr. Dignam also served as a district area science instructional coach and provided supports to a portfolio of 24 diverse schools. He also has served as a university professor for graduate and adult studies for over 15 years for educators who are pursuing their master's degree and licensure as principals and doctoral degree diplomas and licensure as superintendents. Dr. Dignam joined Governor State University in January of 2022 and instructs and supervises future leaders in our principal leadership program and current leaders in the interdisciplinary leadership program. But I also want to mention that he is an accomplished guitarist and writes and records music in his home studio. Welcome to our show. We're going to talk about that mixture, that blend yeah. of art and science today. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Right. And it's all wrapped up in Dr. Chris, right? Because we were talking about teaching is art and science. And we yes. can certainly see that in your description. And Chris, when I look at you and think about you, you remind me of my husband so much who grew up in the projects. And you can imagine all the things going on around him. He had two brothers, unlike him. That's all we're going to say is that they were <laughs> unlike him. And he drowned himself into visual arts and sports. And that took him to the NFL and yeah. that took him to becoming, he just retired 42 years as an art teacher. So he really drowned himself. He took a different route and he drowned himself into his passions, into the arts of expressing himself. So you have so much similarity before we get started and talking about portraiture. Tell us about yourself. I want to know a little bit about your childhood, your family, and your journey to becoming a professional educator. Oh, sure. Well, well, first of all, thank you, Amy, and thank you, Joy, for having me here today. And I really uh, appreciate being here and be able to discuss portraiture and, and learning in general. So as you kind of alluded to, Joy, I, I'm, I'm happy and I actually feel a little relieved that maybe there's some commonalities here that we all have, because sometimes when I, when I meet other educators, my pathway feels very different. And I've read about the imposter kind of syndrome or effect that people kind of feel when you walk in places and around people. So, you know, with, um, with, with my, with my journey, and that's what I, I've referred to it as it's, it's about taking in every day and, and learning from what it is that is around you and what we can learn from other people. And, you know, my, my, um, my journey has been a beautiful journey that one I'm very proud of and, and where I've come from and those people that I've loved and, and the people that I, I hope to get to know and be friends with and love in the future. And my, my family we're, is an immigrant family where uh, my mom and dad immigrated here from Ireland and my dad had me, he was almost 50 years old. So I was uh, very late in life. Um, and so there, there are things that we could all go on about challenges we've had or, but it's really about, you know, how you find, I believe how you find solutions to those things. So yeah, it was, it, we, when we grew up, when I grew up as a child, we grew up by the lakefront in Chicago and Lakeview when it wasn't nice. And um, it was uh, challenging because my, my brothers, unfortunately, they had a different pathway than me. And, and it, it was one that 
creates long-term pathways in life for others and gang involvement and those things. And so for me, learning was refuge and especially music. And so being in a family of, you know, five siblings and having parents that are not from this country. And when you go to school and you pull out your food and you got this big lumpy, funny smelling food that doesn't look like anyone else's with homemade bread and everyone else has wonder bread, you kind of stick out. And so I, I always found myself surrounding myself with other kids that were like me, maybe with that experience of being immigrant students or first generation. So the ways that I, I got into education were really through learning from people I've never met, writers of books that maybe have passed away, musicians that were inspirations for me to learn to play guitar, things with science that I would hear about on television, PBS, and want to go to the library and look up books. And so those are my, those are my first teachers, but music was that was my passion. It still is. It's, that's what my heart, that was my first love was music. So guitar playing was a way for me to just shut out all of those other things that are going on around me that I did not want to take part of. It's so important that we hear about people's passions and how that can help you stay focused on a pathway. Now talking about your pathway, you have a strong science background, teaching biology, chemistry, and physics. You've also been a, an instructional coach for science. Yes. Yet your doctoral research was arts-based. And you've talked about the passion for music. Mm -hmm. It might help us understand a little bit more about this passion for portraiture if we heard more like how did you get drawn into music or explore arts as that passion, that pathway? Sure. When I was young in the 1970s, I, there were guitarists that I just, I heard. And I, I mean, it started, I was seven years old. And, and I think music was different then and important to people than it is now. And I'm not diminishing the music that young people listen to, but it meant something different. And there were vinyl LPs and it was, it was a very cool time. And there were guitarists like Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy Page and, and Jeff Beck and I, I wanted to learn what it was they were doing in it, and it resonated with me. And so I, I could not always afford, well, I couldn't afford to have a guitar for several years, but I would borrow or be able to use instruments. And my mom was able to sign, we found out there were free guitar lessons with the Chicago Park District. And so it was a great place for me to go because at that time in the, in the neighborhood we lived in, we had, you know, we had Latin Eagles, we had the Deuces, we had the Simon City Royals. It was very split up. So you had to be careful which way you would walk because my brothers were not just involved in the games, but they were leaders. And I stuck out because I was their younger brother, but you know, I, I grew pretty tall, pretty quick. So I would stick out in my community and, and with music, what helped me was having a guitar at home. And I could not always go to lessons. So I would listen and I discovered I had relative perfect pitch. And I, I didn't know that because I would listen to songs and I would be able to play along with them. And I went to a music lesson one day and the teacher said, well, how did, you know, how did you do that? And I was about, I was about 10 years old at the time. So I was just listening to this over and over. It was Led Zeppelin's song. And he's played a couple, he had a couple records in the room. And so try and find the chords. What are we doing? And I could find them. And so he said, you know, you have relative perfect pitch, you know, you're kind of born with that. And so that made listening to music very different. And when I would close my eyes, you could, I would, when I would play, I could, you, you see things, you know, I would see colors or 
It's like watching Disney's Fantasia. And so that, that was, that was solace for me. And I would be able to shut out those other things around me. And around that same time, there was a PBS series Cosmos that came out and Carl Sagan was, had this program. And that was the first time I ever got really interested in science. And it was about astronomy, but I was very interested in biology and and astronomy. And here was this man talking about these really cool things. So I did things I probably shouldn't have. I ride my bike down to the Museum of Science and Industry and ride back. And it was a very long ride, but I would just want to look at those things. And there were days that you could go there for free. And so I started, you know, going to a library that we, my mom, it was a very small library. It looked like now it would be a corner store that you would pick up your groceries at. But that love of music connected me in many ways to, to science because, you know, as I start learning these things, and we didn't have science classes when I was a kid in, in elementary school. And I don't know if that was unusual or not, but this was before there were computer classes as well. But I would learn about things about sound waves and I wanted to understand frequencies and things that I was not being taught. And so I was learning those things on my own and, and I was by no means a, a, a bookworm, but it was, it was, it was self-discovery. And, and the reason why I mentioned it, the reason why it's important is as an educator, I, I've noticed that you know, there's a, a sense of discovery learning that occurs, I think, and that's when it's deeper. And when I thought about how I was learning, even as, as a young person in later middle school or high school, things become very compartmentalized and that bothered mm-hmm. me. And it seemed like the older I was getting, the more compartmentalized it became. And that beauty of, you know, the aesthetics of the art of science or, you know, when you read a book and you're thinking about history and the time places people are in and maybe the music or foods or the dress that they have, those were starting to be taken away. And, if, you know, you go to your history class and you go uh-huh, to your science uh-huh. class and your math class. And I did not like that. So sometimes wonderful teachers are the worst students. And before I was a teacher in many ways, I may have not been the best student because I kind of rebelled against that. So I would just want to learn things on my own. But, but having someplace to go as a child and circling back to the music piece, my sister passed when she was 19 years old. And it was, it was devastating for our family because all of our, I mean, 90% of our family, 95% is all in Ireland. And mm-hmm. how do you deal with that? And, and you know, my, my brothers, then they, it became, and I want to say, I'm not judging anyone because we have our paths and things we do. Sometimes it's survival. And sometimes it's because maybe we've not learned the best ways. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with incarceration and, and dealing with visiting Cook County prison or going down and, you know, in Menards, um, you know, these, these are not for small crimes. And that was not a pathway I wanted to go to. So I closed myself into books and into music. One of my brothers was very protective of me and the other was not. And there, you know, last thing I would say socially, there's a temptation to follow that path when you're 10, 11, 12, 14 years old. And it was not something that felt natural to me. But my, my love of learning, whether it was science or mathematics or music, that's what kept me grounded as a young person. I reflected on that. And eventually when, you know, wanting to go to school, teaching was something that I was drawn to naturally because in many ways I was teaching things to myself as a young person. And so I, I kind of love that. Chris, I love how reflective you are and just reflecting on becoming you as Dr. Chris Dignam. 
I really love that. So thank you for sharing that. Tell us about your pathway to doctoral research using portraiture. So let's get into portraiture. Sure. Yeah, so uh, if, if it had not been for portraiture, I'm not sure what I would have done for my doctoral study or if I would have continued with it um, because I was torn. And so I was fortunate that I met a uh, professor and her name was Mary Lou D'Antonio and she had written a book on collegial coaching. And it was kind of cool because at the time I was in science instructional coaching and I was based um, in the Inglewood community in Chicago. And so I was, I knew she had this book and I was talking to her about it and talking about my pathway towards my doctorate. And she was asking me, you know, what things are, are you interested in? What do you, you know, and, you know, I was talking about storytelling, which I love. And sometimes I talk too much. And so, you know, I said, these are things that I, that's what I'm passionate about in ethnography. And I was, I was thinking about my study might be phenomenological. It certainly was not going to be quantitative because I, I'm interested in understanding what's happening around people. And I said, you know, I'm kind of torn because I, I want to understand what is important for young people to learn. And I wanted to ground my work in parental involvement because it was very near and dear to me because had I had, had my parents had a different type of understanding of the educational system in America, I think it would have helped my brothers immensely and even my sister who passed. And so I wanted to do something to honor that. But as a teacher at a high school level, and I was a science teacher, there was no professional development on parental involvement at the high school level. And so I was sharing this and I found out about this book, The Art and Science of Portraiture. And I was like, well, what is this? And as it turns out, I found out I had actually read, you know, a, a text by the same author years earlier called the, the Good High School. And I had not connected. It was, it was the same author. And what portraiture does is that is a, a type of a type of framework, a type of tradition that bridges and blurs ethnography and you know, phenomenon and, and narration together. So you have a picture of the experience of individuals that you're studying. And that was it. It's, it, it totally clicked with me. And so I picked up this book by Lawrence Lightfoot and, and Hoffman Davis. And I couldn't believe, I thought, my God, this is, her background was about the arts and it was about the science of teaching and learning. And I felt selfishly, like I thought, well, this was kind of written for me. So I don't know if it was synchronicity or whatever it may have been, but that's how I was drawn to portraiture because that spoke to me because that's the way I like to learn. And sometimes in education, we have to kind of go with the way that the education is set up, the education system is set up. So that's how I got into portraiture. I know it's a little bit of a long-winded answer, but it was an interesting journey because it brought all of those elements together that I love. Let's talk about more about what your research has done for you as it informed your practice as a teacher, a principal, an administrator. What have you taken away from the research that you've done? That's a wonderful question. So I think that's, that's the most important piece. And that's something that when I, when I as a professor, when I, when, when I teach students, especially those that are on pathways to become principals, you know, if you're going to earn these degrees, you should do something with them. And so, you know, what does that look like in practice? And so what, what the beauty of this was, and, and it was, it, honestly, it was, there were very, very few times in my life where I can reflect on things that were life-altering. That was one of them because it made me look at, at systems and structures very differently. 
and being you know a um, developing high school administrator again it's very compartmentalized and so what i wanted to do was in any ways possible draw learners into the educational experience and how can you be involved how can you own that and what does it look and feel like and so when as as an administrator when i moved on from being a science instructional coach and you know working with two dozen schools and some of the challenging most challenging well not some of in the most challenging areas of chicago i became an assistant principal and i was still working on my doctoral research completed it and when i became principal at lane tech in chicago I wanted to put that into practice. And so we had lots of spaces in the building where we had 11 enormous spaces that used to be shop rooms. And the shops were taken out of the schools in the early 2000s, 1999, 2000. And so years later, they were abandoned full of junk and, and not used and sometimes used as an office and you got this 7,000 square foot office. So uh, what I wanna do is put teams together and, and how do we look at the courses we need and so I would have conditions that were required for a class that new courses we could run you know they had to be they had to have a 10-year window meaning that the class would be relevant for four years of high school four years of college and maybe two years of practice past that it has to be inclusive of all learners our students of color our our students with special needs our you know immigrant students our first generation etc so you know our females in science and so those teams we would come together and look at curriculum, but it had to be blended curriculum. It had to be curriculum that's interdisciplinary. And so we were looking at things like, okay, for example, you have chemistry and you have ceramics. There's a lot of chemistry happening in ceramics. And there's some really cool stuff with ceramics that kids could do in a chemistry classroom as projects. And so it was is taking that approach with teachers and saying, I'm not just going to open up an anatomy class. It should be a class that is blending science, mathematics, you know, and don't forget English and history and world languages as well. Let's incorporate those so that it is true interdisciplinary teaching and learning. So that was my approach for constructing innovative teaching and learning courses and new programs that didn't exist before. And that stemmed itself into regulars and honors classes and then eventually into advanced placement at least the philosophy into advanced placement. Well, Chris, as a former administrative principal, I, I love doing thematic units and I was an administrator at a middle school for a while. And so thematic units and this integrated practice was kind of our approach and a good way for teachers to work together. And as you know, if they're going to work together, then you have to schedule like planning, common planning time. So you have to have all these processes and practices in place in order for that to happen. So I want you to talk a little bit maybe about what that structure looks like in order for you to achieve this. And also I want you to talk about your parents. How did you get your parents involved? Because I mean, they're an essential component of this. And how do you create a community of practice that's active and getting your parents involved? Great. Thank you for asking that. There's something I, I probably should have mentioned earlier. When I my first job as principal, I was put in a very unique position that turned out to be a blessing. It was a ton of work, but it turned out to be a blessing. I'm principal of a high school of 4,500 kids. And 
we had petitioned for three years while I was AP and then became, and then just before I became principal to open up a middle school inside the high school. It was called an academic center. Well, the caveat is that you're principal of both. And so it was quite a bit of work, but the blessing there was that articulation piece, which I had only experienced as, a, as an instructional coach because I'm, I'm providing services for high schools and I have to articulate what's going on with the elementary schools. And so that was, that was phenomenal because what I was able to do was hold teams together. So we had our middle school teams and we had our high school teams of teachers. And the parent involvement piece was, again, that was my background. So it was much more natural to pull our middle school kids in. And so there are things that we did at the high school level. And I had a programmer and <laughs> his, his name was John Nishimura. And I have to honor John because I know I drove him nuts. I said, hey, John, I want to create a system for our high school. Um, I had been working on it as an assistant principal for at that point, almost six years, where we can put kids in pods of 28, but they go to high school together and they have their science math and English class together for all four years, but everything else is mixed. And those kids then, if they are interested in the sciences or the arts or research, that is a great pathway for them to move forward. So we did that at the high school level. And that is extremely complicated as anyone can imagine for, for programming 4,500 kids, but then started out as only 56 kids and we call it alpha STEM. Well, you know, years later, we had about 500, 600 kids in this program and to take their, it ended up being a four-year strand. So what we did at, in terms of programming, that was really cool because we did then between the reason I, we had math, science, and English was it was cross-disciplinary teaching and learning. So we had teachers doing common lessons and teaching between classes. So you would have an English teacher coming into a science class to do an instruction for, you know, sets amount of time. With our middle school, we created a system where they could have some classes with our high school kids. And I was in a position where I had an extremely large number of kids from across the city, every ethnic background, every social background. And so we increased our, our world's languages to just go from the typical Spanish, Italian, French. I think we had German. You know, I, I wrote a grant and we had Mandarin Chinese. We, we started Arabic. We started a Japanese class. And so we would have guests come in to speak. So we had parents come in. We had calligraphy and things that you could involve with world languages. But the one thing I did school-wide was we had a school store. And we had issues with the school store before I became principal. And, and if you're ever a principal of a, a big high school or any high school and you have a school store, it's a lot to manage. So I met with our parent groups and said, look, you know, how about if this is the parent's store? You can purchase the materials. We can use it for fundraising. We can, it's run. I can have volunteers during the day. We'll, my administration will work with you. And so our parents then, they ran our school store. So they were in our building all the time. And it was a lot of volunteerism. And so I applied a lot of what I was reading about with Joyce Epstein, and she was like the leader in that parental involvement piece on the volunteerism, you know, the home school dynamics. And so that's a whole other piece then in involving parents in the homework. And we, and so we were doing that as well. And so I, you know, that's another piece I could probably go into a little bit deeper as well. I want to return to the considerations that you have when designing courses and pathways and curriculum. Sure. What is the portrait of a learner? So uh, there are a couple of things probably with any teams that I've worked on at schools and they would get tired of me hearing 
and uh, they get tired of hearing me say, um, one is, you know, never come to me and say, we got a problem. Come to me and say, we have a solution to find. And the second one is I was not, I was never interested in saying this portrait of a graduate. It always, it always bothered me because by the time they've graduated, it's too late. So what does a portrait of a learner look like? And that would be something I would say. So that's a, a wonderful coincidence of thought that we have here. And so I would say, you know, there, there are certain things we have to have in place and they were called our guiding principles. And it was, it was grounded in distributive leadership. It was about looking at the portrait of a learner. So it had to be, you know, first and foremost, involve all, all learners, you know, special needs students. If we're gonna have a robotics class, we can also, we should also be able to have a section for special learner, special learners or inclusion of that. So we did like, we started the, the only robotics program in the city. Instead of it being a club, it was an actual class. But then we did adaptive robotics. And so our teachers, I would say, well, part of our, you know, one is inclusion of special needs students have been involved in everything. Two, what's the social change mandate going to be for the class? You know, designing, recruiting, implementing. I want to ensure our females and students of color you know, are there for equity and access. So that was a second piece for any new classes. The third was always an innovative, creative course commitment has to include cycling. And what that means is curriculum cycling. I, I had worked in many uh, schools as a coach and as a teacher, and you get this curriculum it has not changed forever. And we did not have active curriculum cycles. So I had to be part of it. If we're going to have a new class, I want to plan what does your curriculum cycle look like? Because this is a living, breathing thing. It needs to be fed and nourished. And so that was part of it. The other piece was, if we're going to have new courses, what's the commitment for innovative, innovative learning space review? Because it's also the portraiture piece. I would say, it, look at every classroom as like the, the painter's palette. And what does that look like around the classroom? And if you look at things like that, I think it, it becomes kind of beautiful, whether you're in your back garden or you're in your living room. What does that look like? Because the painter's palette, you have all these hues and things on the palette. And, and think of our kids in those ways. Think of the curriculum in those ways. Think of equity and access in those ways. It gets embedded in your practice. And so what I would say is that I don't care what the classroom looks like, how run down it is, how small it is, how large it is. What can we do to make it better rather than dwelling on that negative piece? Because our kids in the inner city deserve to have beautiful classroom spaces. What can we do to beautify that to and, you know, support the teaching and learning? And then the other piece was because I had the, the middle school program in particular, make sure in our classes, we're going to involve our middle school kids in the high school classes and vice versa. And so that was important so that there's a social dynamic happening. And the, the active collaboration among interdisciplinary planning teams is very important. And lastly, whenever possible, have those home communication pieces or even parts of the homework with parents. And that was done through dialogue journaling. And that, that was actually for my doctoral research that was groundbreaking for me at the high school level because, and I would say this to my teams, look, you can look up any parental involvement you like, 80% of it, 90% of it's going to be for elementary and middle school. But our high school parents can be involved. And so if we have all of these requirements for new innovative teaching and learning programs, the parent piece, as much as possible, whether it's reflective journaling, communications home, having them help complete the assignments, those, those were, I could show through my research, those were extremely important in taking ownership 
of the learning. So those are ways that I would, over trial and error, <laughs> very easy to, to sum it up in five minutes, over trial and error of many years, what makes an innovation, innovative teaching and learning program sustainable? So those are things that we would have in place with, our, with my teams. As I'm listening to you, I was thinking, are we talking about teaching? Are we talking about arts? And we're talking about both. And I just want to thank you, Chris, for just painting a picture for us. And we're talking to Dr. Chris Dignam, and we're talking about his journey through his education. And we're talking about his passion and how we use portraiture as a teaching methodology, which is really new for me. And is something that I'm now going to subscribe to. I've always been a fan of implementing experiential learning and project-based learning but this feels, it feels very organic. And, and so I love how you describe it. And something I want to go back to is about learning being fun and something that you said, and somehow you get to a certain grade, right, Chris? And learning isn't fun anymore. Amy and I, we talk a lot about the teacher shortage and how difficult it is to attract people to the to become teachers. And that's because of the model that they see. What is teaching? Now, if you ask a lot of uh, five-year-olds, because uh, I went to my granddaughter's five-year-old kindergarten ceremony, and all of them wanted to be a teacher. Most of them wanted to be a teacher at five years old. One kid wanted to be a car. I don't know what that was about, but the rest of them wanted to be a teacher. And that's because learning was much like what you just described for a five-year-old. And then we get to middle school and high school, and it's not that. And this allows you to bring some of that back to them, that love of learning. So, so Chris, how do we remove the silos that exist in high school? How do we create more cross-disciplinary approaches so even talk about what you did with your AP course and that curriculum and that integration. Well, thank, yes, certainly. Thank you for bringing it up. And, and when you mentioned, and, and something too, I, I would, whether now with you know, teaching as, as a professor, but um, and serving as a principal, things, the two things I would say is, look, you have an experiential mindset, but I want to have that innovative spirit. And the most wonderful music and the most important science is done with both of those. And there are mistakes that happen, but when as a musician, you play and you, you make a mistake, well, it might sound kind of cool if you do it this way or that way. And sometimes you repeat this mistake enough and next thing you have a really cool scale or something. So I would, I would come across with our teams like that saying it's, it's okay to do those things, but, but I want you to approach it in that manner. And so when, when we look at that, that portraiture piece and at the high school level, I've talked about this ad, ad nauseum I can remember, and we can all remember being children and, and learning, and, and even as adults, like I said, if I, were to, if I were to read a book on Frankenstein's monster, I'm going to picture that time period, and there are many things that are happening as I'm reading that passage, so I'm not just reading a fiction book, or I'm not just reading a historical semi-fiction account. There's science involved in that period of time, and there's music and those things that are occurring, and for whatever reason, that discovery learning piece becomes more and more categorized. And I, I think part of the issue is, is it's a necessary issue that 
kind of opened my eyes with the parent involvement piece, that's also a necessary issue. And what I mean by that is you need to become a little bit more specific for your lessons when you're starting to move towards, you know, someone who wants to learn about electricity. Well, they're, you know, of course, you're going to have a very, very formal type of learning that occurs in that very much categorized course. But school does not have to be like that for everything. And that's the piece that bothers me at the high school level and with, and with the training for our high school teachers and even with our principals to be challenged to say, you, you can remove those silos. And, what, and it's not just a speech, I, I've done it. And I didn't do it on my own. I did it with great teachers who maybe didn't have the opportunity to do that before. So I think at the high school level, we have to have instructional leaders with that vision. And it really has to be genuine. You have to believe it and maybe you've lived it. But if there's training and, and professional learning that occurs, I think that's where the important piece is. And what does that look like? And sharing these stories like what we're talking about today, because any of us who are learning a certain subject, there are other things we love besides those things. And I think the other piece that happens with parents as our students get older is that there's two things. One, I think as they get older, they're becoming less confident as I remember doing when my children were a little younger than going through elementary and high school. They maybe have not had geometry in a very long time. So it's kind of hard to help your kid with geometry or even with fractions or other things you might be doing. So you start to give kids a little bit more independence and then it becomes a lot more independence at the high school level. And so that's another challenge for school leaders when our kids are moving from middle school to high school. How do you still keep that joy of discovery learning? But understand we need to, you know, you might need to focus a little bit more heavily on strictly biology, on strictly geometry, English language. I understand that piece. But having it's almost like doing things the right way rather than doing the right thing. And so we can approach it in that way. And I think curriculum at the high school level is just, it's become a practice. If we look at what happens in our bachelor's programs with the training, it's very much like what I described. It, it does not, in my opinion, does not start to be until you get to your master's and certainly your doctoral program where you start to get back to that inquiry driven learning. I mean, you can, you create your own dissertation. You know, we should do those things at the high school level, I think would hap, ha, help our bachelor's programs immensely. But I think it comes down to teacher training and especially the instructional leadership training, because they, they don't need to look like that. And that's not how we enjoy learning. And teaching should be just as fun as it should be for the five-year-old walking around the zoo for the first time. So what would you say to a student who has loaded their schedule up sophomore, junior, and senior year with all these AP courses, and you're looking at the, their plan, how would you adjust their plan? They've got AP Chem, AP Statistics, They've, then the next year they have AP Psychology and AP something else, and then the, what would you suggest? Let's, let's get specific here. I would suggest something that, I, that was genuine that I've lived. And that is, I, I was fortunate in many ways to have a school the size I did as principal with an enormous student body with an AP program that did not look very different from when I was a kid. And that was sad. When, when, I, was, when I was young and I was able to pull the data at that time, I, I pulled our data from 20 years earlier. And I looked and I said, well, and it, it, was, it was very weird. I had the exact same number 
of kids from that year I graduated in AP bio as there were in the bio class that I taught when I was an AP teacher. And here I am now as an administrator and the classes still look very much the same, the same types of kids in the classes. I didn't even know we had AP when I was in high school. It was, it was coveted, it was for specific kids. They, they were asked to join AP. Now that philosophy changed. We, we actively seek out kids to join AP. My concern is talking about feeling happy. <laughs> there are parents sometimes that push this a little bit too much because they, they maybe not understand the social implications of taking on too many advanced placement courses and what classes you're taking. And so what I did for that is I created something if there was no other program like this. And it would be interesting sometime to even speak with folks from the college board because they would be able to delve a little bit deeper into this. What, what I did at Lane Tech is I created something called the AP Colloquium. And it was that philosophy of portraiture education and blended learning. I would, I would find year after year, and I'm, I'm the AP coordinator, and I'm trying to make this program bigger and bigger and get move it from hundreds of kids to thousands of tests per year, which eventually I was able to do. But the reason we're able to do that was by working with our teachers, listening to what teachers are saying, working with the counseling staff who are not advanced placement teachers. Our kids are stressed out. And why is that? And looking at our kids who are mostly stressed out with advanced placement, it was the courses they were enrolling in. And I was dealing with about 70 hospitalizations per year. And this, think about that. You know, school of 4,500 kids, about 70 hospitalizations per year. Almost all of it's anxiety-based. Some of it is, uh, it's, it's not thinking through what it, the classes you're taking are pressure at home. And so we would have AP fairs, we'd have AP night for parents. But the AP colloquium, what that was, was I looked at what our curriculum was. And at this time, when I was, in, you know, going back a little further, when I was an instructional coach, I was fortunate to be able to serve as an AP audit trainer. And that was for the city, the entire city of Chicago and providing professional development on how you write your syllabus for, the, for advanced placement to give you permission to even teach a class because you need that. You're not allowed to teach unless they uh, approve your syllabus. So I was very familiar with like, for example, what is in statistics and what's in psychology. My, my kids who were most stressed out were kids that were taking too many math classes, their science classes, and they were, they were not enjoying the beauty of the advanced placement program. So the colloquium was saying, look, if you're for counseling staff and for teachers, if your kids are interested in, in statistics, please do not, unless they're just math whizzes, let's, let's dissuade them from taking, you know, um, AP Calc the same year or AP Physics the same year. Maybe statistics, you could take psychology and maybe our psychology teacher could work with our statistics teacher and we could switch classes once in a while because there are, there's a lot of stats in psychology. There's some cool things that are happening with our kids that are taking, um, for example, one cool one that we did was we were looking at classes in twos and threes that we could pair up and advise kids to maybe take these. Our kids in, in world language for French, take a world history class. It's an advanced placement class, take biology. And if you're taking, if we're taking those and we're doing our training with our teachers as an instructional leader running the school, when you're looking at the Renaissance, there's some really cool stuff happening with discoveries in biology that you could talk about in your, in your French class, but you have the teacher switch and the same thing in world, your world history class. So it was, it was that approach to advanced placement. And despite all of those challenges, there's a lot of programming, which, you know, Joy had mentioned earlier, how do you handle it at the high school level? It's complicated, but it's about getting teachers enthused and 
I worked with some of the, of the most gifted teachers and I was, I was ex extremely proud to, to work with them. And it, again, it was not them working for me. It was working with them, listening to what they're saying and how we can better support the social emotional needs of those learners. Because I can't, you know, having kids hospitalized because they're stressed out about coursework, that, that's wrong. And so those are our approaches to doing that. And what I would end by saying is that we would, when I had the program in 2006 to seven, we had a 46% pass rate. And there were only a couple, there were only about 200 kids in the program taking advanced placement classes. By the 2015 to 16 school year, we had, we were administering over 5,000 exams. And we had created a largest advanced placement program in the, in the United States. And it was that approach. It's a smart approach to doing that and still supporting kids socially and emotionally. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because all rolls into outcomes. You know, what are the outcomes for social emotional learning? What are the outcomes for academic performance? What have you learned about the outcomes of using portraiture as a methodology? So what I've, what I've learned from using portraiture as a methodology and those outcomes that you can achieve when, when you blend in and include your parents and your students and your teachers and in the approaches that you are taking for providing teaching and learning, you create partnerships, okay? And that's huge, you know, especially at the high school level. You're, you, you walk into a high school, you don't see big colorful bulletin boards of what you do when you walk around elementary schools and everyone's a little more serious about things and, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm the AP Calc teacher. so you know, I'm the biology teacher and you're not, you're teaching kids. You're, you're every student's teacher. And even when you're walking on the hall, you're still role modeling. So that, that piece that I was able to take away was looking at the outcomes of having your parents involved. Your parents feel that it's inclusive and they know it's inclusive because they feel it. Your students are developing skills or they're taking ownership of the learning and the things that they are involved in. There, we would, we would do best practice fairs with our staff on providing the types of teaching and learning that you're including in your classroom, how you're involving your parents in, in improving the interchange of ideas and, and uh, communications and reflection with parents. And it was, you know, it was ownership of learning, improve efficacy. It was that holistic mindset in students that can do attitude being supported and the big takeaway for me and, and the big piece, and I've used this whenever I've, I've spoken with other administrators or my own students in, in, as a college professor, university professor, is that when you holistic mindset develops between that partnership of home parents, you know, with the, with the teachers and the home parents with the students and with the teachers, that holistic mindset develops. What that means is that when you feel good about learning, and it kind of goes back to things we probably heard about in, when we were in teacher college. You feel good about learning, you then want to learn. And when you want to learn, you feel good about learning. And so it becomes this cycle that occurs. And I think that becomes as natural as creating your lesson plans. And so that's, I, I just, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to see in, in process. And so that was a big takeaway for me is it's ownership of the learning by the community. That's a community of practice. So as we close today, I have one more question. I want to, could you talk a little bit about 
what some actionable strategies teachers and administrators can consider as they close out this school year. And then, as we know, at end of April, May, that's the planning for next year. There's scheduling happening. And in addition to what you talked about with your AP course, the pairings, what might be some strategies that people can consider right now? So the strategies for our, our administrators would be to move away from professional development as professional learning. It, and, what, and what I mean by that is, this is always a time of year I would start planning, okay, what is it we're gonna do in summer? And, and during summer, we send out what our theme is for the year. And if you look at it as thematic units of professional learning, that moves away from teachers just showing up and they walk in, they go in for an hour and they have an in-service on how to use Elmo's and they go to their classrooms, but half the teachers don't have Elmo's in their classrooms, okay? So that was, mean, that was meaningless professional development. It was just a meeting, that's all it was. And so for our administrators, what are the themes, what are the takeaways you want for the upcoming school year? And so for, for I would imagine for administrators across the nation, it's going to be getting parents back into the buildings and involved in the, in the safest way we can with hopefully diminishing issues with COVID-19. And how do we get that volunteerism back in the schools? Because that's a challenge. And there's, there's, a, there's a social adjustment that's going to have to take place because we've had things that have been upended and those norms have been disrupted. And so that would be my, my big advice for anyone who is a principal right now or, or a superintendent have themes for the year. And each time you have your institute days or your non-attendance days for kids, come back to those themes. It's a theme of professional development or professional learning, moving away from professional development. It could be your parental involvement. It could be your discipline practices for the school and how we embed our equity and access in all of our practices, which means that you know it's, it's for our clubs, it's our activities, it's for our mathematics electives that are you know our high-performing classes so that you don't walk by a room and, and you can predictably tell what that's an honors class or AP by looking at the kids' faces. That's professional learning. Every time you have those institute days, you keep coming back to that. As teachers, if your administration is, does not have an organized set for you for your common planning time or those other things that you um, would need with your department or your grade level colleagues, do what I did. Take it upon yourself and seek out those people that are like-minded and make those plans for yourself. You, I would hope that any instructional leader is allowing a great deal of freedom for academic planning and, and instruction. And if not, do that on your own <laughs> and, and apologize later. Take that. If we, we are teaching children, they only get fifth grade once. They only get eighth grade once. They, they are only going to have one experience as a senior student. And take that. And, and if you love education, if it's good enough for someone that you love or your own child, then, then it's good enough what you're doing in your classroom. So philosophically, I would have that approach as for our teachers coming up for the new school year. We're going to have challenges still with COVID and those things going on. But again, that's the problem. What's the solution? So yeah. we have a solution to find. And speaking of professional growth, one thing that you said earlier about if you learn something, you should use it. I just did some research on our graduates from the principal prep program, the educational administration program here at Governor State University. And it was shocking to me 
Because when I go into the program, when they're starting off, I say, say a show of hand, you know, I take a poll, a show of hand, how many of you want to be a principal? And maybe a quarter of them or less raise their hand because really they're there for, oh, I want a master's degree. I want to get a pay increase. They're never thinking that I want to be an administrator. And so I was shocked to learn that four years later, and that's the average time it really takes, you know, from the time you graduate to land a principal position, that 50% of them were actually administrators. So great for Governor State University. So they went into it with the mindset that I'm just going to get a master's degree and not use it. How about that, Chris? And not use it. <laughs> and 50% of them are actually using it. And that's a really good number. That is, that is a good number. And that's, and that's something that I was astonished with myself when I was a student, because I remember many, you know, 20, gosh, it, it was 20 years ago you know, earning, earning my type 75. And you would have people in class that they were, they were taking that for their, you know, lane or step adjustment, you know, going to the master's level now, and they, they did not intend on using it. And so I've said it repeatedly to students I have saying, listen, I cannot tell you, I can only share with you my experience as being an administrator. You were, you were working with a, a, another level of influence you can have on your learning community. And if you don't see that as a beautiful thing, then, then maybe this is not the right program for you because I'd rather you do not continue on this program and just do this to do nothing with it than be here and you should be highly involved. And I think that is, that is a very good number because statistically, and that's why back, I think it was around 2012 or so, State of Illinois started changing their okay. type 25 program because of this exact phenomenon. I think it was, I think it was at that time, it may have been the greatest master's program graduate type of work that, that educators were seeking, but they weren't using the license. Correct. Yeah. And that's, so that's a problem. Great. And not only did I find that 50% of them are administrators, they're all performing at the excellent and proficient level. So we're doing something great here at Governor State University and just thank you so much for being such an influencer, Dr. Chris. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. And I'm very excited to work with all of you here at Governor State. Yes, I'm glad you're on our team. Thank you so much for being with us today, too. Thank you. Thank you for having me.